Thanks for listening. I'm Zoe Rusia Moreno, and this is Arquitácora, a podcast dedicated to the never-defined visual design and all its in-betweens. This show will be available in all podcast providers, so please give it a chance and subscribe, especially now because we're starting our amazing interviews, and they're going to be so much fun. Please enjoy. Welcome to a new episode of Arquitácora. Uh, today we have a, a very special and very savvy guest whose knowledge in architecture history and overall general history knowledge is going to make you fall in love with design, even though it's not, even if architecture is not part of your interest, he sparks this speed for knowledge and he's going to make you fall in love with it. So here it is, the one and only David Rifkind. Hi, David. Thank you for architecture. It's so good to have you here and tell you and tell us about a bit about well, yourself today. Uh, how so? How you been doing? How is how is everything with everything? Well, it's good. I mean, this is a really strange time to be talking about architecture and education. I mean, it's strange to be talking about architecture in a world where, on the one hand, everybody's confined indoors. So everybody is stuck inside a work of architecture. But at the same time, so much of what we do is shaping the public realm. And the public realm physically is now seen as something that's potentially dangerous. And so, you know, it, and the public realm is just as important as it's always been. I mean, it's a place of public assembly. It's important politically. But also it's important because now that people don't have their daily commute to work and they don't have access to gyms, there's a lot of people like myself are going outside for uh, recreation and exercise. And what we find is that, we're, especially here in South Florida, we're um, being concentrated in almost dangerous proximity in the few areas where it's relatively safe to go biking or jogging. And so the public realm is a really, it's a strange place right now. And so as an architect, It's interesting to look at the world and imagine how it's going to be different after COVID-19. And then as an educator, it's also interesting, you know, I grew up in a world where education meant a teacher in a classroom with students. And now that is just physically impossible as a matter of public health. And so we're suddenly changing everything to be like the way that you and I are talking over a computer and which is in some ways even more personal than the old lecture hall. And at the same time, there's also a weird disembodied feeling about it. Um, and so it's a really interesting time to talk about education and architecture. No, and it's funny that you say that because even from my own perspective, um, at least um, I live in Miami Beach. So here people have reacted, at least the tourists, in a way that they think that nothing is happening. Even mm -hmm. And there has been a lot of conversation. So and gatherings of people in the beach even though they're not supposed to be there it's been weird I, i i try to keep myself here and safe but i've been having a lot of conversations with different types of designers regarding about the situation in general and just how it's affecting their perception to relationship and to technology to even education itself as as you're saying so i think it's it's super it's, it's a weird it's been a weird couple a month it's been a weird month in general but i think uh, this is exciting as well because we have the opportunity to 
create these links now to one-to-one that when we were in the real world, we yeah. wouldn't have because we have that, we, 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 take, we took it for granted, basically, because it, we, we always saw human interaction as something that was normal. Exactly. And so, I was speaking of human interaction, I just wanted to hear about your, a, little, a little about your story, about basically how you became an architect and how you became a writer and how you became who you are today, basically. I mean, the story for me pretty much starts in 10th grade. I, I went to a, a public uh, magnet high school in Philadelphia and my 10th grade art teacher taught us about architecture. And it was the first time anybody had ever really spoken to me about the built environment. And it just kind of ignited something. And I was lucky to be living in a city that is itself a really fascinating place. And I kind of almost had this awakening where I just, as I walked through the city, I was looking up and looking around me and trying to understand how all of this happened, right? How this public realm was shaped by the buildings around it, by the urban uh, design of the place. I was also really lucky to be living in a city where the the urban design was actually quite important, right? Like Philadelphia has this um, really seminal um, urban plan from 1682 that was then transformed in the 1950s and 60s by Edmund Bacon, who ended up writing the book on urban design and producing um, some short films for uh, PBS that I ended up also watching when I was in high school. And it all kind of came together. Like this is how cities are designed. This, this is the role that buildings play in shaping the lives of people. And it became magical to me. And so I went to architecture school in Boston, um, fell in love with the profession, uh, went to the BAC, the Boston Architectural Center, which was a school that uh, had us working full-time during the day and going to school at night. And so I was also in the profession, you know, from the age of 17 and had a chance chance to, on the one hand, understand how buildings went together, like literally how they were fastened together out of materials and things and how financial aspects of development work, how all those all those kinds of concerns, what it was like to work with developers. And then, then at the same time, I was also really interested in the larger theoretical concerns of architecture. And so it was a little bit after graduating where I'd been working in the profession at that point for eight or nine years that I realized that there was something missing. And what was missing was actually a larger discussion of theory and history. And so I went back to school and I did a master's degree at McGill University with Alberto Perez Gomez. And that convinced me that that both studying history and potentially working with students hmm. could be an even bigger contribution to the world than what I had been doing as an architect. So I went to Columbia and did a PhD, began teaching, and that's what ultimately led me to FIU. And so the um, it's interesting you asked what it, uh, what got me to be a writer. I had never thought of myself as a writer. I'm a historian, and as a historian, I have to write because I mean it's the true for most academics. The work that we do, we have to present to the public through writing. So I'm not a natural writer. I but you kind were... of enjoy the process, but it's difficult for me. I mean, I, I mean, I'm really a, a visual thinker, so it's easier for me to think through drawing and through model making than it is through writing can be very difficult, painful for me. But that's basically how I became a, a quote unquote writer. <laughs> yeah, I, I just say writer just for the fact that you, you've been you've written already several books and several publications mm -hmm. and it's something that I find really intriguing because as you said, you're a historian. Just the the way that you even think about the spaces and interactions and the history around them and just to visualize it and put it in, into paper, I think is super mm. special because yeah. even though it, like something visual is there, at least in paper, we have like, you're like, kind of leaving like your legacy of right. 
what you're producing in, in, a, in a written work. And that's, that's super special. But since you're saying that it's super difficult for you and you're getting inspired through sketches, basically, is that how you get inspired or do you have another special method to it that adds to the story? Ooh, that's an interesting question too about inspiration because it's, it might be the hardest thing to, to nail down is what is it that, um, that causes you to act suddenly, right? Um, and I don't know, I have to admit, there's a lot of funny accidents that have gotten me where I am in terms of my intellectual pursuits. Um, my interest in modern Italy, which was the focus of my doctoral dissertation and my first book, that came almost from a random conversation. I mean, I've always been interested in the relationship between architecture and politics, and particularly in the way that modern architecture is both shaped by political activity and becomes an active participant in political processes. And I was looking for a way to study that um, in writing a doctoral dissertation. And it was almost by accident that it was suggested to me that I should uh, study, um, well, an Italian subject, first of all, and then an, a subject in fascist Italy. The reason why that was so weird was because I had I had no interest in fascism. I just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and but then again, something clicked, and it was the realization that the modern movement in Italy was exceptional, and it was exceptional in the sense that everywhere else, modernism was associated with the progressive left, um, and in some cases, even with um, uh, uh, revolutionary communist regimes, like in. Early Soviet Union, but Italy was the only case where a uh, reactionary right-wing government um, actually adopted modernism, at least in part, as the the way that the state and the party manifested itself to the people. And I thought that that exceptional quality, the fact that this was an exception to the rule, would be a way to help understand something um, sort of essential about modernism. And it turned out to be the case, right? It was a way actually of understanding how architecture itself is implicated in somewhat authoritarian practices across the board, whatever its um, motivations that architecture Architecture is very bossy, right? I mean, architecture yes. tells you how to stand and where to sit and where to walk and uh, tells you, well, it, it informs you of a lot of things and a lot of things that we don't even think about, right? I mean, architecture naturalizes things which are unnatural, including uh, racial segregation. Architecture yes. also naturalizes things like gender relationships. And it was in studying architecture in fascist Italy that I started to understand all these ways that architecture acted politically without us even understanding that, without us being conscious of it. And then the next big leap was after having written my dissertation, um, I ended up getting invited to go to Ethiopia. And that was also just a random stroke of luck. Um, I had never been interested in, in Africa at all and suddenly realized that there was a whole story of modernism in Africa that I simply didn't know about, in part because it had never been written about. And that, that was why it didn't interest me. Getting there, I realized, holy cow, there is an incredible story about modernism there that needs to be told. And so there, yeah, there's amazing stories there. And especially, I'm particularly interested in modernism. And so my current book project is writing about the history of modern Ethiopia as told through the built environment. So using urbanism and architecture to talk about the process of a modern nation emerging and um, sort of um, shaping itself. And this is a story, there, there are versions of this that have been told uh, in, well, certainly in Latin America and in South Asia and East Asia, but the story really needs to be told in, um, well, certainly in Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. And then eventually we need to, um, we need to develop really nuanced 
histories of the built environment and modernism across Africa. So I got excited about all these things, but partly it's it's a series of accidents that have led me to these cases. No, I agree. And, and when you were saying how architecture informs you, I remember a particular project that uh, you taught that it was the Casa del Fascio. Oh, yes. And just how about informing, uh, how architecture informs the psychology of a person and how that particular building was set in a way that it will reform the political people the, the people into the political side and also la libella uh, a project yes. uh, what i found super interesting is just at kind of the same time projects like angkor wat was also being built so it's always yeah. interesting to see that type of how the culture crashes even though they're yeah. separated by the kilometers and kilometers and how people just starting to interact with, with one another yeah so yeah uh, basically I, i get your point on why you got inspired into writing but then how and and just and your and your way through school and i just wanted to dig deeper into why do you feel that you need to teach or study this particular career yeah. like why architecture and why not history in general and a history of the world why a focus Ooh. architecture. Yeah, that's also, that's a great question. And part of the reason why I'm so compelled to teach in an architecture program is because of the role that we play as architects in shaping um, humanity. One of the things that I'm really concerned, I, I've been concerned now for about 14 or 15 years, I've been really concerned with climate change. And even before that was really uh, concerned with um, Uh, social inequalities, uh, particularly in the United States, but also globally. There is such a vast disparity of wealth in our world. And with that, those disparities, there are disparities of every kind of outcome, including longevity, right? And what we do as shapers of the built environment affects that greatly. And part of the reason why I feel so compelled to teach in an architecture program is to help, you know, a whole generation of young designers to understand not just that we have agency, that we have an ability to shape the world, but that we also have an ethical responsibility to do so and to do so deliberately. So, I mean, you could continue to practice architecture without even thinking about these things, but that's basically how we ended up with a world full of strip malls and big box stores <laughs> and also a world full of segregated cities and neighborhoods where, you know, you could be separated by just a few miles. Like here in uh, Miami, one mile away from me is one of the wealthiest um, Uh, census tracts in Miami-Dade County, people there will live as long as, I mean, their longevity is about the same as that of Japan. If this census tract was its own country, it would rival Japan for the greatest longevity in the world. But oh, wow. a mile in the other direction is a census tract whose lifespan or life expectancy at birth is closer to that of Cambodia. So a distance of about two miles separates two parts of Miami-Dade County where the, the question of poverty is what determines a 15-year difference in lifespan at birth, right? I mean, that's the cost of poverty. And along with those kinds of outcomes, and we're seeing that now um, exacerbated with COVID-19, right? We're seeing how this disease does in fact discriminate, or if the disease doesn't discriminate, then certainly <laughs> the healthcare system does. And what we're also seeing then is a preview, a little um, appetizer of what's going to happen with climate change and with the incredible inequity brought on humanity because of the effects of climate change. So what I'm trying to do is to help students understand that we have an ability to change that, we have an ability to shape the future, and we have an ethical responsibility to do so. And that's why I 
I choose to teach in a department of architecture rather than in like an art history department. And it's also why I'm so committed to teaching at a public university like FIU rather than at, you know, a so-called elite institution. We really, we have an opportunity to change the world for the better. And I think that we need to do that. So that's that's what drives me. Yeah, no, I, and I agree, especially now that I feel on the news that the, it's been showing how fast the nature has been able to recover. It's, oh, yeah. uh, even though it's been only a month, uh, it's yeah. incredible. It's incredible to see. And I just feel that how besides architecture and how the narrative is going to go is basically how um, how humanity is going to respond to it either by i've been thinking that sometimes maybe someday we're going to do a self-quarantine every single year as a society like there's going to be laws about that because we <laughs> there's tangible proof that being in our homes has been able to recover this and then how architecture is going to adapt to this self-isolation process that people are going to have to be able to go through or even how people are going to react to each other and interact with each other because even after this is done people are just going to be insecure nobody's going to be the same for a while at least even though if the if they're there's a lift to and everyone can go back to work everyone is still going to be like uh, should I go back to work? I'd rather stay exactly, home. Yeah. Or, and yeah. even now we're just realizing that we can do everything at home in reality. Oh yeah. And we've been I mean, I'll say one thing about that too, is that um, the, the biggest impediment to people working from home up till now has been that basically managers and business owners have not felt comfortable doing that because they kind of feel like if people are not under their immediate supervision, then they won't work as productively. And this has been a particularly strong complaint among um, advocates in the uh, disability community, right? Because there are a lot of people for whom daily commute is a physical hurdle participating fully in the economy. Um, and they've been arguing for decades that they ought to be able to work remotely. Um, well, now that everybody has to work remotely, I think one of the things that people are going to discover is that nobody, absolutely nobody wants to sit in their car for two hours a day. Nobody. <laughs> and as a result, what we're going to see is that at, after all this is over, a lot of us are going to stay working at home out of choice. Our managers um, and the, the people we report to are going to be happy to do that in part because it lowers their costs, right? Because they just don't need as much office space. Yeah. Obviously, it's going to have effects on real estate, but the bigger effect I'm, I'm hoping is that it's going to affect the way that we allocate space in our cities. You just won't need as much space devoted to uh, automobiles not as much space for driving or for parking or for fueling the darn things. And as a result, there will be all this other space that we can recover for things like planting trees and also making space for people to walk and bike. Because the other thing we've discovered is that most of us don't have access to sidewalks that are wide enough for two people to pass at more than six feet, right? Yeah. Which you need for the, this kind of thing. So we'll move toward a more walkable, bikeable city, a city with a lot more green and a lot less asphalt. And the benefit to that too is that these are all changes that are also uh, the kind of things that make the city better in terms of resilience against climate change. I mean, all of those plants they're going to uh, soak up um, excess rainwater from sudden storms, right? All those trees are going to reduce the heat island effect. These are all benefits that are going to be, you know, they're going to be benefits at multiple levels. And the last thing I'll say about that is that what you've been describing about how nature, about how yeah, nature has rebounded 
after a month of humans just not driving. Yeah. I mean, we've seen the photos from Los Angeles and from uh, Northern India, you know, where you can see the mountains in the distance. And Mexico. Reason, yeah, in Mexico, all these places, the reason you can see obviously is there's a lot less particulate matter in the air. And why that's important is because those particles in the air, that's what causes breathing ailments. That's why yeah. asthma is so much more heavily concentrated in poor neighborhoods than it is in wealthy neighborhoods. Uh, or why it's more concentrated um, among communities, poorer communities that are uh, living on either sides of a highway than they are in wealthier communities that don't have that. And so what we're seeing too is that the basically the, the thing that determines whether somebody lives or dies in the face of COVID-19 is whether they had the underlying conditions like asthma or uh, emphysema or other things that are caused by those particles in the air that are caused by our addiction to fossil fuels. So the short version of this is that if we stop burning fossil fuels, we're also going to make ourselves just a lot healthier in terms yeah. of our ability to breathe. And that's also going to help make us more resilient against um, uh, respiratory illnesses like COVID-19. So there's all of these cascading and intersecting benefits that are gonna come from a world where we just have a lot less asphalt and a lot more plants. So I'm hoping that that's going to be the net effect on our cities after um, the pandemic is over. It's probably gonna start with a lot, of, a lot more of us working from home over, you know, over our computers. Yeah, and uh, the thing about that is just, okay, working from home, that's a thing. But when we actually have to, if you want human interaction after this is done, just going yeah. back and finishing that thought, it's just that like cities in Europe, uh, uh, not Italy, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like Germany, uh, Holland, these countries, even though they're being exposed, their numbers have been kept relatively low. And just because of the fact that people are not driving and people are at their home, and if they, if they, they're uh, considering the urban relationship and they have taken measures to actually minimize uh, yeah. their exposure to all this. So I think that's super interesting. And I just wanted to follow that up in terms of the part of education in general. And I just wanted your opinion about the, uh, the education system of today and public universities and private universities do you think is something that needs to be addressed in, in the sense of like how we're teaching our students uh, how to become the next designers or just becomes become the next oh, yeah. storytellers of whatever their story is going to be i think in general the architectural education system. So the architectural education system gets a lot of criticism from all quarters and, and it's all totally valid, the criticism. I would say that we've done a really good job of creating an educational system where because of the accreditation agencies and all of the, the sort of the meta level um, uh, sort of regulation that goes on, what we've done is created a, a system where at a base minimum, people emerge from architecture school with a pretty good idea of how to practice as architects. Pretty good idea about what they need to do ethically, pretty good idea of what they need to do as technicians, a decent idea of how to, to uh, design. So people emerge with basic competencies. And what it really then depends on is as an individual, like what is your, um, you know, what drives you as a designer? Yeah. Um, so architectural education, I think the point of it is not to make everybody an excellent architect, but at least to make everybody a competent architect. And I, I think, think in the US it does that. I would say too about the public universities that the, the mission of public universities to expand education 
to the broadest possible audience is fantastic. And it's what gets me excited about FIU. And remember that um, FIU as a university is a school where um, about half the students who study there are eligible for Pell Grants, which means that they, they come from a socioeconomic strata of people who in previous generations would never be able to go to college. And so what we've done is we've expanded in the U.S. in general, we've expanded the opportunity to go to college to you know a huge number of people. FIU, in fact, um, any given year, we have about 150 students who are um, functionally homeless, which is incredible that students are going to school while also being effectively homeless. They're couch surfing or sleeping in their cars uh, and so on. And so what we've ended up doing is being able to extend the possibility of education of higher of a higher education and a master's degree in architecture to people who again in previous generations would never have had that opportunity so i really i love that about what we do but having said all that there are some really significant problems with um, architectural education one of them is about the political context of what we do mm. and this is where my work as a historian is so important because a lot of people who are practitioners tend to immunize themselves against the the thought of what they do as political you'll often hear people saying well my work isn't terribly political Bullshit. <laughs> i'm sorry getting out of bed is a political act it's a choice and if you're an architect I mean, for, what's the first act of architecture? It's to draw lines on the ground and build walls. You can't build a wall in an apolitical way. You're defining a space that's included and a space that's excluded. That's fundamentally political in its nature. And so what we have to do as architects is to understand that larger political context of what we do, how we make some things possible, make other things inevitable, and understand what kind of power structure we're supporting and reinforcing with what we do. Um, it's rare in architecture school that you sort of fundamentally question the nature of capital itself, right? In fact, to even raise that question as a teacher can get you into serious problems at a lot of schools. That's problematic in its nature, right? To raise questions over, you know, why do some people get to live in $20 million villas and some people get to live under highway overpasses, that too can be a dangerous question to ask in the context of architecture. So these are the things that we have to do better as uh, as the people who sort of design these programs, right? as the people who teach in them, is that we have to make sure that these questions are fundamental to what we do. It is not a natural condition of humanity that some people get to live in mansions with you know, multiple bathrooms and other people live outdoors. That's not natural, but it is a system that we've created politically and that as architects, we reinforce with the work that we do. So in terms of what we, you know, what we teach, what we teach is our values, the problems that we assign to students, the questions that we ask of our students, those reflect our values. And that's where we have to be better as architects. I think we've done a really good job as architects about talking about sustainability. We've started that. Right? Yes. The U.S. Green Building Council, which um, administers the LEED programs, it's basically driven by architects, architects who are concerned with um, the environment and the role that buildings play in the environment. We've done a good job to this point, but we can go farther, right? It should become an article of faith in architecture schools that it is ludicrous for us to even imagine buildings that um, perpetuate the consumption of fossil fuels, whether it's the, you know, the energy that's used within the building or the energy used by the vehicles that make that building uh, possible, right? 
it should become an article of faith that we end that regime now, right? Uh, so teachers like Billy Fleming, the landscape architect at Penn, who uh, is doing studios based on the Green New Deal, that should be at a base minimum what we teach in schools. But we should also be talking to about social equity and the role that architecture plays in reinforcing unfair uh, systems and the role that architecture can possibly play in uh, overturning them. Yeah, and now that you say that, uh... It, it is a pro it is something I, that I even observed when I was back in school, uh, but also in the terms of how they even taught us in studio, and mm -hmm. that sense of uh, like you need to build this amount of things by this amount of time, at this because it's it's very difficult to to quantify and, and uh, like how are you gonna progress in school, because you have okay you have yeah. a set of rules. But when you're first thrown there, you're like completely out of your normal environment because you just come out of high school and a place that they always teach you rules and they wait in. And even that education there, they teach you that architecture is something that in reality is not. Because oh, yeah. when, when you're first, I, when I was first starting architecture, I thought I was just gonna be building buildings, you know, creating the next yeah. the next Frank Lloyd Wright. And I didn't I didn't even know who was Frank Lloyd Wright, but I thought he was cool. I just fall in water. Yes. The typical yeah. answer that like 90% of students are gonna have. And I just found fascinating that it through the education system, uh, at least in the beginning of the first formation years, it was very programmatic in the sense of like we needed to make cubes. We needed to make mm -hmm terrains but then as the career progressed the program started to become a little bit more loose because one as a, a, a designer starts thinking a, a little bit outside the box in that sense the yeah but i think that's a, a part that it needs to be taught to the students since the very beginning but i it, i i don't have the answer of like what uh, why you have to teach it that way it's just in the sense of like starting the student to become excited that you, you can do whatever you want, but as long as you do something, <laughs> you have to turn on something because that's how we, in reality, that's the education system. They have to quantify something. In the end, you have to have a grade. Yes. Yeah, exactly. There's the mechanics of how do you assess students, right? So, for example, one of the things that we're, I think is really important is for us to um, do even more collaboration within our schools of architecture. Yeah. Because that's how buildings are built. One of the big problems with celebrating these heroic figures like Frank Lloyd Wright or Frank Gehry or any of the architects that we know by a first name like Zaha or, or Rem, the problem with that is that that's not how architecture has ever been made, right? There's very few projects in the world that have ever had a sole author like that. Architecture is essentially collaborative. Exactly. And for example, there is no great work of architecture without a great client, right? It's, it's fundamentally impossible. Um, and so collaboration is essential to the built environment and we do ourselves a disservice by focusing on individuals like Wright, for example, as these kind of heroic Michelangelo-like figures <laughs> that are touched by the genius of the almighty <laughs> and whatever. No, that's silly. But the other thing that that ends up doing too is perpetuating systems that are problematic in a number of ways um, from standpoints of class and gender. So one of the things we have to do is focus more on um, collaboration. But the problem with the collaboration is how do you grade a group of students? So you get four or five students working together on a project. Yeah. 
So yeah, there are some mechanics within the educational system that run at odds with <clears throat> some of the things that we need to be doing, like you know, teaching better collaboration. But we're working on it. We really are. I, no, I can see that, and, and, and I see the change in the last five years. But and we can talk about this for, for a long time. But I let's move on to another section. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask you if you were an uh, architect or a historian or even a professor, what mm. would you do instead? Um, so there's a lot of things <laughs> uh, I would love I feel to that do. You, I feel that you would be a humanitarian. <laughs> well, actually, that is, and that's probably that's the one I keep going back to. Like I keep thinking that that would be, if I did it all over again, I could see myself um, first of all actually getting my architectural license, which I never did, <laughs> and I regret that. But really? getting licensed and then just hanging up a shingle in a disadvantaged neighborhood, right? Like in a neighborhood where people don't have access to architectural services, because there is a lot of there are a lot of people in the United States who've never met an architect. They don't even know what we do, really, and they they certainly don't see themselves as being the kind of people who can commission a work of architecture or architectural um, services. And so what you end up with then is that there's you know whole areas of the country that go without even thinking about this. Um, what I would love to do if I had a separate life would be to be that person, the guy in the storefront in some <laughs> other neighborhood, like in, in Miami, it could be something like Overtown or Little Haiti or Hialeah or something, or uh, Opalaka, and be the person who then ends up doing the uh, architectural services for you know, whether they're local entrepreneurs or um, nonprofits or arts agencies, basically being the person who helps shape the built environment from the micro level, right? Just putting a bench in public space to right. the macro level of you know building um, affordable housing. So I, I, that, I think I'd ultimately probably end up uh, doing something like that. That's funny that you say that because uh, for me, when I, even when I decided to become an architect, in reality. I, and I've been telling this in the past few episodes, and, and, and I, don't know, I don't know why, but I've been obsessed with this conversation because um, when I before going to architecture school, I wanted to be a paleontologist. Ooh. And not many people know about me, <laughs> about that, uh, because they see my my parents who are cinematographers. Yeah. And I'm, uh, and they're like, why do you want to be a paleontologist? And I just wanted to, the way I saw it is I just I was passionate about the, the history of the things and why it works yeah. the way it works. And then that passion went to, okay, I cannot be a paleontologist because it's too expensive. <laughs> uh, then I went to archaeologist. Okay, let me be an archaeologist. Then <laughs> it wasn't a thing again. Right. So eventually kind of like in terms of like narrowing down, I went to architecture. So that's why I find so fascinating on like the people's reaction to become something else besides of what they do. And even though you're saying you'll become the tool for architecture to continue, instead, in reality, your core is still being a designer and that open the, the, yeah. the open paths to design and stories and develop, development of urbanism and all that aspect. So, uh, my following question is, and this is one of the last few ones. The the in, in the show we always give importance to the tell a story and the narrative. And mm. so I just wanted to ask you how in your everyday work as a professor you apply the narrative 
in your classes because it's yeah. one thing telling us the, the story, the history, but then they're telling the story in the classroom. Right. And and so you know, as a native Spanish speaker, that in all the Romance languages, uh, Spanish, Italian, French, the words for story and history are the same, right? So it's uh, storia, storia. Um, there's no difference between the story in the word that we use or the story that we tell and the history that we tell. And so narrative has always been assumed to be a part of um, the telling of history. And it makes sense. Like if you want If you want information to become knowledge, you have to put it into context. And that context comes with a really good story. Having said that, I've also read Hayden White, who is the one who really warns us about the power of narrative. I mean, narrative is important. And I try to be a good storyteller because I know that that's how we understand these things. But at the same time too, as, as Hayden White writes, every good story becomes its own truth value in a way. Yeah. So that if a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it's a compelling narrative, then it becomes really difficult to, um, well, it can, it becomes, I should say, it becomes really easy to tell something which isn't quite true or um, is not the best explanation for something or is a complete outright falsehood. Hmm. And the problem with that then is that a really good story is hard to, um, it becomes truth, it becomes conventional wisdom, and it can be hard to uh, dismantle. And it's particularly the case too, when a really good story resonates with what people want to be true. So then you get cognitive bias and people will accept a story, even if it's wrong, because it tells the story that they want to be true. And so that's the problem with narrative. And as a historian, the weight that we bear is to make sure that our stories are always the best possible explanations for why something happened the way it did. Because the danger too, for a historian like me who's working on a subject that is not written about widely, like modern architecture in Africa, the danger is that what I write becomes fact, whether or not it's true. And, th and this is particularly the case with interpretation. I mean, there's one thing about, you know, observable empirical facts, but putting them into a context, putting them into a frame, uh, if you get that wrong, you can end up shaping a conversation for generations. And in fact, today I was just writing about um, uh, architectural history in Italy after the Second World War, where several prominent historians wrote things that were just factually untrue. And when we look back at them now, we think it's absolutely absurd. It had to do with the way that they They said that certain architects in fascist Italy were involved with the regime and certain ones weren't. And it's absurd on its face. And it just had to do with them wanting to uh, make the modernists the good guys and the anti-modernists the bad guys. Yeah. And they told the story. Yeah, they told the story and it was a clean story. It was a believable story, but it was a story that modern architects wanted to believe. They wanted to believe that it was not possible for modernism to be implicated in fascism. And so that's the danger, that we can tell stories that are really compelling and people will accept them. And this is true too with um, all kinds of colonialist histories too, the stories that we've told about, um, basically stories we've told in order to justify the colonial exploitation of places, the displacement of native peoples, Um, and things like that. And so this is the problem with history is that narrative is our tool, but it is also a very dangerous tool because it can be used to weave a story 
that is not only wrong, but one that can be dangerous uh, to future generations. Well, I honestly, these, uh, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, you're, in reality, you're right, because the way uh, history are shaped by the winners. Oh gosh, yes. So yes. yeah, there's a lot of that part of narrative of how you make something that is fantastic become real, but in the sense of keeping the information uh, factual. Oh yeah, yeah. And even telling it to other people, because when you tell it to other people and they believe it and they think it is true, then yeah. the continuation of the misinformation passes on. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, and we do this all the time. I mean, I've a couple of times I've just made up stories, just uh, <laughs> I've improvised and just sort of invented these stories that really smart people with graduate degrees believed. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And then <laughs> I've also discovered- The confidence that you portray is the way I say it. And that's the thing, if you're a really good storyteller, you can make up a completely nonsensical story. Like one time I convinced a couple of art historians that photography had been invented in the Middle Ages. <clears throat> it's a long story, <laughs> but they totally believed me because of the way I was telling them the story. And I've also discovered this too with social media that a couple of times I've accidentally convinced people of things that are just patently absurd simply <laughs> by the use of images and sometimes text. And I realized, oh my goodness, if you don't, you know, you, the, the danger is that telling, creating a hoax is actually not that difficult. And so that's the role that we have as historians is understanding the power of narrative and making sure that we tell the best possible explanation for why things happened the way they did. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. It's, I never thought of it that way. Um, <clears throat> and coming from that point, and you were saying about creating the story and <laughs> being a factual story, uh, what's also been happening to, in today's society is that um, since everyone has to be, be become a good storyteller, oh, yeah. and they have become um, basically good in many, uh, diversify their mm. knowledge in a lot of, in a lot of things. The term generalist has become super popular in the last few years, and I just wanted to ask your your opinion about that term, the, that specific term, and how it is is affecting yeah. us in design and as people are, and you as an individual as well? It's a really good question. And I can think of it in a couple of different ways. And one is that, I remember when I first started studying architecture in the 1980s, um, and people would ask me this question about what kind of architecture I did. Um, and I remember, I, it took me a while to understand that what they were getting at is that they were used to people in medicine or law who had specializations, like you would be, a podiatrist or um, a, I don't know, a thoracic surgeon or something. So in medicine, there were very few generalists, it seemed. Uh, similar in law, there were people who did one branch of law or another, but never the yeah. whole range of law. And so they were asking, so what part of architecture do you do? And at that point, you know, I worked for firms that worked on certain kinds of projects, but we didn't really see ourselves as specialists. And so that whole um, dichotomy of specialist versus generalist is kind of interesting. I think now the time is, I think the times call for a, a kind of a, a generalist mentality. Um, and I will say ju just as a historian that there is a wonderful quality to the architects who've been able to work in many different genres. 
Um, one, for example, would be uh, Louis Kahn, who didn't build that many buildings in his career, but he built a number of projects that are, you just couldn't tell the history of modern architecture without yeah. using projects like the Salk Institute, for example, or the Exeter Library, um, or the Kimball Art Museum. And so here's a guy who did these projects, or the, um, the Mellon Center for British Art at Yale. And so here's a guy who did maybe three museums, two um, medical research facilities, uh, one library, one national capital building, um, and you know one university campus. And so he only did like maybe one or two of each of these each one was just masterful. And in that way, it reminds me of um, Stanley Kubrick. So Kubrick does basically one of every type of movie, right? One <laughs> historical epic, one satire, one um, science fiction film, but each one of them is, is uh, in one horror movie, right? Like The Shining. So The Shining is possibly the greatest horror movie ever made. 2001 may be the best science fiction movie ever, ever made. made. And, and so here's a guy who, you know, Kubrick, like Khan, was not a specialist. He was a filmmaker. And in the case of Khan, I think what makes his architecture so powerful is that he thought about architecture rather than how do I build a school? He was thinking about how do I make a space where people learn? Um, and rather than thinking, okay, so I've got a medical research facility, I've got to do ventilation and all this kind of stuff, he's thinking, okay, how does architecture bring people together in such a way that they can cure cancer? And that kind of generalization nowadays comes um, with the, the necessity of being um, resilient in the face of uncertainty. Um, so about 15 years ago, very few uh, American architects were even talking about um, sustainability. It simply wasn't on our radar, mm. even in the early 2000s. And now we recognize that there's no way to practice without thinking about sustainability. So resilience in the uh, way of thinking, okay, now how do I rethink everything I do as an architect in order to use resources more economically and, and so on. That kind of resilience is a necessity. And in the face of COVID-19 and all these other kinds of disruptions, we've got to be flexible enough to be able to change how we practice. And that ability to change is not something that's innate to a specialist, but it is something that somebody who is a generalist is more comfortable doing. And so in that way, what I would say to anybody who's especially who's studying architecture now is to think in those terms, to think about how the big questions, the meta level questions that we ask as, as architects, yeah. how do you pursue those? And then how do you also, um, basically, how do you also begin to synthesize all of those other things that you read and that you see uh, in the world? So your interest in biology or in physics, um, your, you know, your love of literature and film, all of those things can become aspects of your architectural practice. They can inform your architectural practice. And so what I would urge people to do is think of themselves more as generalists but also people who are steeped in the humanities and the sciences, because the humanities are gonna teach us to think critically, and the sciences are gonna give us that ability to, to really read empirical data um, when we need to. So I think, yeah, I'm a big believer in the importance of generalization rather than specialization. Yeah, and, and for me, that, term, that point that you said of being interested in the other arts uh, as part of information as your architecture, I think it's super interesting because that's how I see myself now after graduation, after I, done, I did my thesis, 
um, I saw myself that I wasn't going to be the typical uh, practice architect and I decided mm -hmm. to go through the route of being uh, becoming a vis uh, archi architectural visualizer or a VFX artist. Um, so, and I thought I saw the way that you explain it as a, as a, uh, and as an expansion of uh, what architecture in the end taught me was kind of like a philosophy of life of how I see things instead mm. of just being just the career of like this is not what I do and for me it became something what I see so I uh, and following that and we have time for one more question before we finish the episode um, speaking about what you became is like what do you think architecture help you define us? Like, do, do you feel that you will study it again and go through all that experience and all through all the ups and downs yeah. and just do it again? Because it's, it, being an architect is crazy, honestly. Oh, yeah. No, that's a very true. And I would totally do it all over again. And I've had to think about this too a few times because. Um, one of the things about my architectural education as an undergraduate, I, so I did a Bachelor of Architecture, um, which was the more common degree back in the 1980s. And the degree that I got and the, the program that I was in was one that was really focused on the pragmatics of architectural practice. So what that neglected was, in some ways, the humanities. So when I went back to school to do my master's and my, um, uh, my PhD, I was suddenly with students who had real um, liberal arts educations. You know, they had studied languages and literature and history and things like that as undergraduates. And I hadn't, um, I had not read novels and, and talked about them with a professor of literature and so on. And I think for a long time, that's what I really wish I had done. Like there was a period where I wish I had um, taken the advice of going and doing a liberal arts education and then doing a master's in architecture. But at the same time, I think back now, essentially I've had both of those worlds. I've had a chance to steep myself in both architectural practice and in the humanities. I love both of those worlds. I love being a part of both of those sort of those clubs. Um, and I don't think I would do that any differently. Um, or if I did a liberal arts education to begin with and then <laughs> architectural education afterwards, ultimately it would be the same. Um, and it's this sort of like this big, fantastic world of multiple disciplines that I'm in love with and that I'm conversant in and that I'm really privileged to be a part of, right? Because I'm accepted in worlds of architects and of historians and I love all of those worlds. But I don't think I would change any of those things if I had a chance. Oh, that, that, that's awesome. I, I, I was just wondering if it, even when you study architecture during your time in the 80s, do you think that you will study it now into the, in 2020 if you had to start restart from zero or like mm. and you're and you're you're 17 year old again yeah you study it right now what will you say to even these um, yeah. students that are thinking about taking that leap of studying architecture right now yeah that's that's a really tough question and, and the simple, so the other thing too is it's, it kind of presupposes that I'm 17 again, but I have all of the, this life experience. And so one thing that's really different now, I mean, one thing that's really different now is the scale of the crisis. So if you go back to 1986, the year I started studying architecture, um, we were all living in a weird world, which was 
oddly more dangerous and at the same time more comforting. What was more dangerous about it was that we were all just 30 minutes away from nuclear annihilation. And at the same time, there was a comforting dichotomy in the world, right? There was East and West, there was capitalism and communism. There was this balance of power. And then we all kind of believed, well, nobody's stupid enough to upset that balance. So on the one hand, the world was more dangerous, but at the same time, it was um, more stable. But now the forces that are that really threaten our future, especially with climate change, are, um, well, really, they're just as existential. I mean, they're just as potentially cataclysmic, but there's so much less ability, it feels like, to prevent cataclysm because it's no longer about convincing two old guys um, in offices and uh, halfway around the world not to kill each other. No, now we're in a situation where we have to convince a planet of 7 billion people that we have to fundamentally restructure everything about our economies and our social orders and everything in order to stave off the kind of species ending cataclysm that could come from climate change. And that's so much more dangerous that I wonder if I knew that today as a 17 year old, I wonder if I would go into architecture and instead what I might do is go into the hard sciences with the desperate hope that I could invent the machine that just sucks carbon out of the air. Right? Like I could see myself doing that if I was a teenager again, but I just don't know. I honestly just don't know. Yeah, it's a complicated question. It's something that I just wanted to throw there just to see the observation. Yeah. And uh, because even now, it, it, architecture is going to become uh, a symbiosis, a communication with technology. So yeah. maybe architecture itself is going to be become a building or, a, or an apparatus or something that is going to suck the air or the carbon dioxide front. And so it's interesting that you say that. And I think it's an awesome point to end up this episode. And so I just wanted to thank you so much again for being here, David. It's oh amazing to hear your voice, to listen to your knowledge. It's just for me, I could listen for hours and hours. And I hope that everyone that is listening to this episode like feels the same because I think it was awesome. Thank you so much, Zoe. I really appreciate the invitation. and. It's always fun to speak with you. Okay, so this was uh, the end of the episode of Arquitacora. And so please follow us, uh, go to iTunes and leave a little review and a little comment <laughs> <laughs> of what you think about this episode. And hopefully in the next few uh, comments, we're going we're gonna to have continue this conversation. If it's not in person, we will write about it. Thank you again, everyone. Keep on listening, keep on being creative. Thank you. Bye.